Hi, welcome to the Master Series podcast, a conversational series with designers and creators about sustainability, design, and craftsmanship. Today, we're talking to Richard Hassel, Australian-born architect and artist who founded the award-winning architectural practice Wuha Ruang Mansam in Singapore since 1994. Richard and Master Series recently co-produced an indigo dyed textile art called Deep Blue. We talked to Richard more on his personal journey as a designer and artist, the art of indigo dyeing, and sustainability in art and design today. Uh, you moved to Singapore in 1989, I believe. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Is there a reason why you chose Singapore? And because in Australia, it's such a great landscape. It has so much to, to but um, well, 1989 was actually the last time Australia was in recession, and it was particularly bad in the construction industry. So, um, like nobody from my year had any possibility of getting a job. Um, mm. So, a little I think like the graduates now are worrying about it all around the world. Um, mm. It was, um, yeah, really sort of interesting times where everything you'd been training for, suddenly there weren't any opportunities. And um, uh, at the same time, because I had family in Singapore, my aunt and uncle, my dad's sister, uh, had been living here since the, um, uh, like the 1960s. So I was quite familiar with Singapore. I used to come up on holidays and stay, stay with my relatives. Um, and Singapore was doing very well. So my aunt said, oh, I just met an architect at lunch. And uh, he said uh, he couldn't find anyone to work for him. So why don't you come up here and give it a try? And uh, and I did. <laughs> so it wasn't very uh, like well thought out. <laughs> it was a phone call and then I was on a plane like a few days later and that was it. Wow. And, and you started Wuha quite immediately after that? No, so I worked for five years for Kerry Hill Architects. Um, and so we started Woha in 1994. And, uh, and you, I assume that uh, you worked with your your uh, partner in Woha, Wong Man Sung, also around the same time? Yes, yeah, so we worked for five years together. Um, it, we both started at the same time as graduates. And uh, I think uh, it's quite a... <laughs> It's good to be able to watch someone for five years and uh, see how they handle stress and all the various aspects of the job. So I think when we decided to start our own firm, you know, we already had a very long and comfortable working relationship. Uh, and that um, has uh, continued, I think. Uh, it's been remarkably free of uh, big blow-ups. I mean, we have lots of minor disagreements. <laughs> about things but um, I think it's you know we both somehow have a very similar attitude and sense of what's important um, and also uh, a sort of aesthetic sense and a sense I think of what means um, a successful design you know so our criteria for whether something is is good or not is quite similar and and so we I think that's how we've managed to um, sort of continue to build on our direction and um, develop our interests and uh, create a body of work that's been very consistent over over that time. Right. 
And did the whole, you know, when you guys started Wuha, did, did, did it, was it a mutual agreement that you guys will focus on environmental um, uh, and sustainable design as, in, as, as a core? Or is it something that you guys, as you gradually work in more projects and you guys decided this is something that we should be paying more attention to? It was the sort of core value that we never sort of said this is what Wohan's about. But I think because we'd, we'd been at university in the 1980s, like the last half of the 1980s, and our professors and everybody had sort of come of age in the 1970s <laughs> and the 70s was when there was an oil crisis and there was actually a real interest in the oil crisis time in sustainable design and so we had a sort of um there was this real flowering of sustainable design from sort of late 70s to late 80s uh, but interestingly it was all based around a supply crunch you know not a um uh global warming problem uh, but the fear was that uh, the West would run out of fossil fuels. And so things had to be sustainable to um, to be able to continue. So it was sort of completely separate premise for why it was important. But it was really strong. It, like my head of architecture school was an environmental scientist. Uh, so it was Munsum. Uh, we did really early computing, like simulations of thermal performance of buildings. So I think it was one of those cases where our our training um, had sensitized us to it. Um, at the same time, my dad was really interested in these things. So he'd actually funded research at the um, Solar Energy Research Institute of Western Australia. Um, he'd actually done solar air conditioning for his, his um, business, um, which was amazing. You know, all these uh, parabolic concentrator collectors on the roof of their office. So I'd sort of had direct experience with sustainable design from my family and from my my um, university days. So I, we were sort of primed and, and Mansam had a similar uh, experience. And so I think we just had, by the time we graduated, we'd been quite um, uh, inculcated with this idea that uh, low energy design and climatic design and responsive design was really important. Um, and then, you know, not too sort of, so 89 through the nineties, no one was interested in sustainable design, but because we were already sensitive to it, we were already reading a lot of these more scientific articles and things about global warming and getting worried about it and worried why no one else was worried about it. <laughs> you know, and it seemed like this urgent problem that just was so uh, under the radar that clients didn't know about it, consultants didn't know about it. Um, and then I think the turning point was really um, Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, which came out um, mid nineties, I think. Um, and that then started a bit more of an alignment between um, sort of public perception, public policy, general understanding in our um in developer circles you know that this was becoming an issue and so we found it a little easier then to um to sort of get more done because we'd always actually from our first projects done very sustainable projects it's just no one was interested in the sustainability we had to kind of smuggle it in <laughs> under the guise of another idea but actually the retrospective was very good training because we learned 
you know, if you can present natural ventilation as a as a sort of um, luxurious lifestyle choice, <laughs> that's like being in a resort. Uh, we realised that people were quite happy to ad adopt it. Um, they didn't feel like something was being taken away from them, or they were being told they had to sort of live a suffering life for the good of the planet. So I think we really honed some skills in um, thinking how to make sustainable ideas, um, not just a sort of bolt-on, um, problematic, expensive, unwanted kind of suffering <laughs> element, uh, but as something that could be really integrated into the concept and seem desirable for a whole lot of other related qualities. And I think that has helped us um, move the idea on a lot of big projects because people sort of felt it sounded great anyway. You know, it wasn't wasn't a, um, a drain on the project, you know, resources or diverting attention from elsewhere. It was sort of deeply embedded in, in a really great outcome. Why do you think it's the breakthrough project for you, for you that, you know, when, when you realize that, okay, people are finally paying attention to that, that, you know, that you don't have to smuggle the, the, I'll say the sustainability thing in within the blueprint, but just, you know, slowly, you know, using that as almost like a, you know, USP right now, like, yes. you know, in, in, in Wuha's work. Yeah, what, what, what project was that? Project, I think, where we did it but actually it wasn't ever built so it wasn't successful but sort of in terms of um packaging up these ideas in a way that was quite powerful and groundbreaking was our scheme for um the ducks and plain public housing which became the pinnacle um one by arc studio with a really great scheme as well so uh, I don't think it was uh, a loss to Singapore, but uh, mm -hmm. for us, that was a project where we we kind of developed a, a very large building into something that was um, this matrix of internal and external spaces. It was super sustainable. It was filled with um, sky gardens. It was filled with public space. Um, it had a really strong um, sort of a philosophical attitude to public housing behind it um, and public space and civic generosity. So that that scheme, in a way, we've been able to keep referring back to it and mining it for ideas and implementing things that we didn't get to do uh, the first time around. So for instance, our Skyville public housing project, which uh, only was awarded to us eight years after that one, is in some ways you know, the final built outcome of that, that project. I'm also interested um, to also see the other side of you know, a work that you're working on, and that's Richard Hassel Art, um, and that is the textile uh, design project that you've started in 2004. You were doing such great things um, in, in Wuha, and I'm interested to know why, um, you know, textile yes. specifically. Maybe you could tell me yeah. more about that. Well, actually, I mean, it's it's more than textile. It's really an art project. Uh, but textile is a really um, important component in that. Uh, so I always had this art um, practice um, from when I was a very small kid, actually. <laughs> uh, my parents said I never stopped drawing from like the age of uh, two or three, I think. Um, and I, I was actually... Uh, Mum's got some things that I did when I was three, and I have to say that 
<laughs> quite good. Um, and so I, I just love drawing and making art. Um, and I sort of on and off always considered it as a career. And uh, in fact, when I finished architecture and before I came to Singapore, I was thinking of not doing architecture and going back to art um, as, as the sort of option of what was going to happen when there were no jobs. Um, so if my aunt hadn't called me, you know, I might have ended up being an artist and never becoming an architect. Uh, so, yeah, so I, and so I was doing a lot of painting and things actually up until around um, 2000. So still when I was in Singapore working as an architect, uh, painting in oils and uh, I always kept up figure drawing as well. Uh, and then I, I lost the space where I do that because I'm kind of a messy painter. And uh, I was, uh, then I thought, oh, how am I going to do this in my nice, clean apartment? Um, and I remembered being very interested when I was at school in the, um, this Tessellations, the work of M.C. Escher. Um, my brother's a mathematician, so he had a lot of uh, uh, books on applied mathematics and interesting things with mathematics. And I thought, oh, I've, you know, that was sort of something I parked at the age of 14 or 15 and always thought I would come back to. Um, and then I thought, oh, let's have a look at all that stuff again. And so I, then I sort of realized, oh, you know, MC Escher was very interesting, but he kind of like did everything there was to do in that field and left nothing for anyone else to do. So it sort of um, felt like a bit of a dead end. But then after doing a bit more research, I realized that he'd actually died at this time when um, mathematics and geometry just started to get really interesting again because it was the early days of um, computing. Um, and Roger Penrose, who was a mathematician that he had been uh, in contact with and working with, um, had developed just after he died this really amazing tile called the Penrose tiling, which is aperiodic, meaning it, it didn't repeat. Um, and since then, there'd been a lot of research and really interesting things happening. And as an architect, you're always really interested in things like tiling because, you know, one of our, <laughs> one of our tasks is we have to like tile floors and we have to make facades into panels and things. And, um, and it's actually, you know, often quite sort of boring. You're going, oh, God, you know, what am I going to do with this floor? Um, and, uh, this to me was really interesting. It's like, oh, there's new ways to tile floors and facades that no one's really been exploring from a uh, ornamental and decorative and applied sort of uh, applied um, patterning point of view. Uh, and at the same time, I thought, well, actually, these are, you know, just as in philosophy and uh, art and science, like these tilings reflected a new understanding of the universe. Uh, you know, it was sort of the thinking behind how do we calculate clouds and, uh, you know, how do you, there was lots of things that before computing, like the maths just was too difficult, involved too many calculations. So real interest across like many, many fields in how to solve and understand all these things that are around us every day. Um, but we had no sort of, language to um, describe them or calculate them in calculate them scientifically so i thought it was a really big picture actually it's like 
these tilings come from a new understanding of the universe. They come from new technology, uh, new powers of and ways of investigating and doing things. And, um, you know, architecture has always expressed how people understand the universe. So if you think of the Forbidden City in China, uh, it's very axial. It, it puts the emperor at the center of the universe and creates a series of expanding worlds around it. So sort of our job as architects is actually to interpret our understanding of the world and, and build that in, um, you know, make it a physical form. And so all those reasons came together and I thought, yeah, this, there's something very satisfying about having new ways of putting pieces together that reflect this. And so I, I started um, first like looking at tessellations because I, I always find them just visually very fascinating um, and worked out some new ones there that I thought were interesting. And then also in terms of... Um, uh, just patterns, you know, not necessarily tessellated creatures or animals, but uh, abstract patterns. Um, and then um, sort of textile-wise, around that time, we were doing Alila Villas Uluwatu in Bali, and um, we were working with um, a friend of the developers who was going to run the hotel shop, um, this lovely guy called Baron Menangsan. And um, he actually is also a textile maker, uh, but making really beautiful high-end uh, textiles that take traditional Indonesian techniques and um, combine them and use more precious materials. So, for instance, his things are often given away as official gifts by um, the prime minister or the president, I mean, of, uh, of Indonesia. Uh, and so... I was, you know, just, we got on very well. He's, he's um, a generation ahead of me, but uh, just, he found what I was doing really interesting with the patterns. And we realized, you know, there was this aspect of, of the tiling, which was very much um, connected with the, um, you know, the way chops are used in Indonesian batik uh, to, to create a pattern by combining this, these chops, which are essentially tiles, you know, a, a motif that is done. And so we did some experimenting, which is still after 11 years, we still haven't finished it. Um, he's a very patient person. And so he thought he would like to grow his own silk. And so it started with planting the mulberry trees. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so it's, uh, um, it's been on and off and we've tested some stuff out. Uh, anyway, it turned out a lot of the aspect of the chop was so, although they're sort of simple in concept, they require a lot of concentration to place them. And his guys uh, refused to work on them after a while. They said it was, it was hurting their brains to try and uh, uh, get it in the right spot. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so I've got some sort of samples and some half done ones and then we've, agreed to come back and do it again when his new silk is ready. Um, but meanwhile, we keep out and he's actually been helping me with the art in terms of getting um, craftsmen to apply gold leaf to them. Uh, so we've continued working together on the art, but we actually haven't <laughs> ever produced a finished textile yet. So that's where I think where this project um, 
with the Master Series to actually finish a textile is quite a milestone because uh, there's been a lot of textile design, a lot of research and development, and a lot of thinking, but uh, haven't actually created the final product until this moment. <laughs> Wow. So, so what we've done was a highly expedited, expedited process in this case. And, and this brings us to, you know, uh, is actually a really, you know, it seems like a, a lot of, um, uh, I would say it's a lot of happy accidents, uh, that led to, uh, quite a few substantial work, you know, from, from architecture then to, you know, um, the, the idea of, you know, of, exploring tilings to uh, calculations and then to you know applying that that idea into textile and then finally you know on our end uh, we were talking to um Watanades, who is our craftsman um who does indigo dyeing back in tokushima and you know back then we were you know we we had two options we were to okay be like okay let's work with them and see what we can produce but there's no soul to it and there's no um if we were to do it ourselves um and i'm sure the technique is amazing and, and we just wanted to you know this is this is just yeah. me sharing candidly on our end i think you, you heard the story before but essentially we 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 were going through you know our uh i would say like a, a list of masters that could potentially work with us for other projects and then, you know, obviously architecture was one of the things that we often, you know, look into and, you know, investigate, but also, you know, draw inspiration from and try to profile. And in that sense, we realized that, you know, while Wuha's work is so stellar and amazing, and we wanted to profile Wuha first, but then we realized that you actually have Richard Hassel art. And that's when we decided to take a turn and approach you as a textile artist. Uh, which, you know, it's, it, it, I think it's a lesser known, but I think, you know, uh, what I've noticed also that you've, you've gained quite a bit of following over the past, uh, I'll say, months that we have, you know, since spoke. Do, do you think that's a, that's, that's the case for you? Like, did you, do you realize that? Um, I think it's more? been slowly building because I really only, although I was working on it from 2004, I only sort of, launched it in public in 2016 so it's been only um less than four years i think since uh um i became uh, uh publicly <laughs> known for my secret hobby um and yeah so i think since then it's grown quite um quite well uh i've actually got three different galleries who are working with me so one in the us one in 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 europe and one in um, taiwan um, and so they've been quite active um, uh, particularly in taiwan in the last uh, year or so uh, promoting uh, the work uh, and I, I mean it's nice because i think if you're not sort of selling your work and exhibiting it you're it's it can become a little bit um uh, dispiriting, <laughs> you know, to work on it in private. Uh, so it's actually nice to get it out there. And I actually find the process of exhibiting it and showing it like really useful because it becomes a project with a start date and an end date. 
and you have to explain it, you know, so it actually feeds into the process and drives it forward. And uh, I've kind of uh, always discovering new things that I'm interested in and things that, uh, you know, maybe there was a hint of them a few years back, but I didn't do it then because I was focusing on something else. Uh, and so I've I've actually realized it's sort of, ex it's a bit exponential. I've got so many things I'm interested in with the art that I don't have time to uh, to follow them all up. But what I really like about it is I feel like I've got a kind of um, my own sort of order book for things that I need to do, uh, which can last me another 20, 30 years, I think no problem because, uh, and still give me great joy and sense of discovery and um, yeah, sort of, uh, um, unique and interesting kind of aesthetics and visual culture, which I haven't seen before, which is coming out of it. So I think, you know, I'm finding it a great source of creative inspiration, which, which I love. Um, at the same time, like the Instagram was really interesting to me. So I started that for the opening gallery, um, exhibition. Uh, but then I realized that, like, it really worked for me as a visual diary. Uh, and so I, I, I sort of do it for myself, um, but again, in presenting an idea, just you know, with a bit of short text and and what what's interested me about it, it also gives a sort of a discipline and a, um, a kind of a continuity of ideas through time. And also, you know, I think anyone with an Instagram page knows this that you start kind of as you're looking around just doing your daily life you're going oh that's interesting that would make a an interesting post uh and so i think it does you know like in the old days having a visual diary where you would write in a book or, or paste things um it's it's a really good way of sort of cur curating your um own journey uh focused around a particular topic and so, yes, yeah, some of the I mean, followers, there's not a, not millions of them, of course, but they've been building up nicely. And I think what's really, what I really enjoy about it is it's people from all over the world who are interested in this particular aspect of patterns and textiles and geometry. Um, and a lot of architects too, obviously, because being an architect, people are quite interested in it. I think some are confused why I don't really mention architecture on the Instagram, but, but for me, it's sort of, I like keeping it separate because, um, if they merge too close together, I think I lose the, the joy of a sort of self-directed free research and it becomes something that will become too closely connected to projects and deadlines and things. So for me, I really love it being freewheeling. I can follow an idea wherever I want to go. But what has been really interesting, I think, is that the things I discover through doing this do feed back into our projects. Um, and, and I sort of also have a whole category, uh, um, catalog or library of interesting ideas that if the right project comes along, you know, I can activate them very quickly. So I think we have, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of the same thing. So yeah, you kind of form an yeah. ecosystem. Yeah, it's like a, a sort ideas. of little research lab wow. of ideas on geometry and systems thinking. And because our architecture, it's been a really weird convergence, actually, that we've realized what we're doing a lot in the architecture is about systems theory um, and trying to create um, 
sort of emergent properties of things that by putting together all the right ingredients, you get a result which is actually better than all the parts if you examine them on their own. Um, and that's exactly the, the sort of emergent property that these complex tilings have. Um, so I've sort of, um, it's almost like one of those crazy people who, you know, has a conspiracy theory where everything in the world's connected. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's kind of like, it's been a really, I mean, it's not unusual really when you think about it because I'm, it's the same brain and the same person. So it's not unlikely that the ideas in architecture would express themselves in art. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the beginning they felt very separate and they weren't really connected. And as I've moved through it sort of in terms of um, uh, architecture, art, philosophy, uh, science of sustainability, uh, all these things merging together into something which I'm sort of really enjoying now because it feels like um, each thing is informing and reinforcing the other. I noticed that uh, you did mention, in, uh, I went through Richard Hassel art website uh, <laughs> to really find what is your, um, I would say story behind your textile design. And I did realize that, you know, you, you also previously mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago that um, you worked with uh, the first ever textile work that you did was with um, an Indonesian textile uh, maker. And now you're working with us on indigo dyeing. And I think um, it's, they're all, you know, very traditional textile making um, from the very different cultures. But what do you, do you see any similarities or differences between each? And what do you, you know, what do you think is the more, I would say, interesting thing about, um, in, in this case, indigo dyeing that, that you think it's so mm. unique um, on its own and why? Well, I mean, well, interestingly, Baron, who, although he's Indonesian, he actually went to Japan and studied textiles. Uh, so there's a strong connection there. Uh, but I, I think textiles are really, I mean, it's one of um, uh, Asia's cultural heritage, I think, that fine textiles were, were heirlooms, they were um, very, um, highly prized, they were often the most expensive thing that someone could own in a lot of Southeast Asia, um, in traditional cultures and handed down, you know, from generation to generation. So I think they're really, um, I sort of feel a great reverence for textiles because to me they're, they're one of those really beautiful things that combines, um, yeah, sort of the intangible aspects of culture with something very tangible, something uh, that's from the material culture and really embedded in, um, you know, many traditional lifestyles was that that was what um, usually the women would do um, in in the time when they were not, you know, looking after children or or managing food and things. So it was like a it was a um, a way of life that 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 people would be with the loom, you know, while the baby slept and, and making these textiles. And then the, the patterns in the textiles are often deeply symbolic. So they all have a, a meaning. And so in weaving the textile, they're sort of putting together really important symbols. Um, and so they almost have a sort of magic quality that they're, they're like talismans that are covered with meaningful symbols. So even things like humble batiks that we know of as sort of buying as a, tourist souvenir from Bali, often the, 
the symbol means like a, a Chris, the, the magical sword, or they're like rice grains, or um, they might represent um, a particular family. And some of these motifs were um, uh, prohibited for use except by, you know, the most highest caste of society because they were seen to have um, magical properties. And so this runs really all through sort of Indonesia, Malaysia, up through Vietnam, Taiwan, and uh, into Japan as well. So I think that's something um, that unites uh, a lot of Asia. Uh, and same with the techniques like indigo dyeing. So the natural dyes um, in, in many places are quite unique because they might refer to a local plant. But indigo was so prized because it was um, just so beautiful. Uh, it was a sort of culture that had spread, I think, very, you know, thousands of years ago from one place to another. Um, and so you find indigo dyeing even in, you know, like Flores or Sumba, Eastern Indonesia. Um, it's, it's very prized there as well. Um, and all the way up through Asia to, to Japan. I, I do see that, you know, I was leading to, to a question as well, where I did notice that you kind of have, you talked a bit about technique as well. I think, you know, um, with such similarities in different types of, you know, textile design, um, but, you know, yet they share a, a very similar core and, and it's been spread. Uh, it's something that is unifying between all of Asia. And I think, you know, uh, I'm also interested to know it, as an artist, uh, a textile artist uh, at this point, um, what what comes first, like the technique or, or the vision? Like, do you have, you know, maybe a, a idea in your head that you want to apply to, um, uh, with this particular technique, let's example of indigo dye, like it's really more, uh, I wonder which yeah. one Well, I think it's a, it's um, a combination. It's sort of, well, everything is a process of finding out, I think. Um, and so for me, like the really interesting about textile dyeing at the moment is because um, I think digital printing is this enormous threat to all these traditional um, techniques uh, because it is just so easy and fast to do anything. And it's so frighteningly. Um, able to replicate, you know, any traditional technique. Uh, and so it's really um, quite, um, from a cultural heritage point of view, I think it's a, a very frightening time because I think the commercial drivers to do anything by hand have sort of vanished overnight. And even sort of semi-industrial techniques like the chop printing in Indonesia is, is dying and disappearing very, very quickly. So for me, it was sort of like, what is it about physically making something with indigo dyeing that is um, different from ink spraying out of an inkjet printer? <laughs> you know, how, how can when you pick up the object, pick up the textile and look at it, how can you feel that it's not um, a simulated digital product? Um, and that I think is, so I was, so the idea that came then was like, is there something in the process or the technique which would introduce, um, the traces of the process that would be impossible to replicate on a digital, uh, technique. And so I was really interested, um, you know, when we started the process, I was asking them what what can go wrong? <laughs> what, what is an aspect that is, um, uh, 
sort of embedded in the hand process and um, and it could then make this object more precious because it's it reveals the trace of its making. And uh, as you know, we tried a few different things. I was interested in <laughs> you know, like what happens when the vat gets really dirty and the indigo dirt sticks all over it. But it <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> we actually yeah. still have samples of that. And I mean, I think unfortunately with COVID and everything, really quite interesting. Didn't get to go there, but I would, you know, in future, like to really visit the factory because I think nothing would, you know, is more interesting than than actually physically taking part in it and seeing if there's possibilities. Yeah, and actually on that day, you know, we're we're. We're doing this three ways thing, right? With with you and then with Watanabe's as well. And Watanabe's also shared with us that they're they're actually doing this what they call a indie project, uh, and it's actually to spread the idea and and the lifestyle that 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 indigo dyeing um, actually you know introduced for people. Basically, for him at Watanabe's, uh, he he saw that you know indigo dyeing is uh you know he 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 even called it a lifestyle more than you know just a, a means of you know uh creation um he he saw that you know from growing the indigo plant all the way to you know yeah. being part of literally part of the ecosystem in in his farm you know the the, the pigs it, the, um, the 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 pig farm nearby his his factory when we met him in osaka he shared with us uh, this is really interesting story, and 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 he basically had a great connection with pig farms. So those pig farms, um, uh, I would say, byproduct like aka the manure, become the fertilizer to his indigo project, and 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 then he just you know ferments yeah. them, and everything, every part of it is natural. It is nothing, you know, which I think is really amazing, and it's it, again, it draws parallel to what you've been doing either whether as an architect or as a textile artist that everything is natural it just it just happens because it's part of the the, the inherent process like nothing is forced and it's the the whole the the creation that comes out of this is that it comes from the interpretation of this uh, uh natural process and not so much of trying to go against it or trying to you know, like squeeze yeah, some some exactly. idea of it, and and it's just it's almost like going with the flow, and and that's so interesting because it 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 speaks to I think even though you're on the outside creation end where you come in with the ideas and the design and Watanabe is coming with the manufacturing and you know for us with the curation as well, like a lot of these things happen because it's supposed to be and it's it's kind of uh i sound a bit like woo woo here but you know i i think that's the the i'll say interesting and even magical thing about about um this whole project i think it's that's that's very interesting to me and and also sustainability again you know from you know, going drawing back to parallels where you have to smuggle ideas and sustainability into the blueprint of the design to now, you know, it is inherently part of the process. And even now people are looking for um, the, the idea of, you know, doing something or, or doing design, yeah. uh, a design process that are 
inherently and also difficult i think you know i think there's an interesting thing that now people really want to um understand the difficulty in producing something so they can value it because i think you know like global production and robots and factories and digital has sort of made it possible to spit anything out the other end of a process um but knowing that someone you know a particular person labored over something that you're holding in your hand um and it's filled with human hours and love and skill and training you know it adds a lot of meaning to to something um and i think you know that was as go back to your earlier thing about how the design and the concept and how it came together so in the end you know we decided on the rice paste resist method and uh if you remember the watanabe they said oh but we're worried that we can't match the two uh different um designs because we're it's a um a, a three step process that we did right uh but i thought that was the sort of interesting thing so that each piece yeah. if you compare them next to each other will be different because of the slight misalignment um of the of the two patterns um and that to me actually means it's more precious because firstly it's something that you know arises from the linen that's stretching and wet and dry you know so each piece is reacting in its own way because it's natural fibers uh then you've got the craftsman who is lining them up but because of the the fabric stretching and various things you know the pattern is slightly different in every case um and then because it's a layered process you can also see the passage of of time and the fact that someone labored over it and had to do something you know <laughs> a few times to produce the final result uh and then also if you look at the textile you know from front and back it's different uh that's something that you don't get with digital printing uh and so it's sort of it's not just a two dimensional pattern sprayed yeah. onto a a fabric you know this is three dimensional the indigo is clinging to all sides of the linen threads um and so it's sort of a it's so much more physical and real um than just you know it than a a pattern sprayed on so i think all those things are um fed into the design and you know then there were physical aspects like how wide can the rice paste be to be effective how to you know so we found out all those techniques and fed into it and that fed back into the design so the sort of initial idea that it would be layered it would show the process then um uh, got fed back into it yeah so it's sort of not one thing or the other but it's yeah. a process of understanding and coming up with a design that highlights the unique aspects of the indigo process one final note on deep blue uh we we understand it's it's coming from the idea uh of light passing through as well because you want to explore the ideas between layers of you know uh, which is integral of the the indigo dyeing process where you work in layers but also you know you want you you understand that it, because you describe it as a 3d um art form as well you know more than just even though it's on a 2d medium you know um and it's it's drawing attention from what i would say is a very traditional chinese yes. uh screen as well because of the light permeating through um maybe you can could you maybe tell us a little bit more about why the the chinese screen as a a motif um 
as opposed to, yeah. you know. Well, I wouldn't say it's exactly a Chinese screen, but I think a Chinese screen is something people are familiar about if we refer to it. But actually, I mean, Japanese also have Japanese screens and every, again, it's a sort of pan-Asian thing, this, um, this um, light and privacy sort of separator, which is not separating air uh, and something very beautiful about Asian architecture, I think, is the is the um, the screen element. Uh, so in this case, it, it was taking a so the pattern itself is a pattern that is self similar, and uh, meaning it has it's sort of its parts repeat parts of itself, but at a different scale. So it has this interesting thing that you know the small parts can be put together to make the big parts, which themselves could be put together to make even bigger parts and so on to infinity. So it has this really interesting quality in that way. And I thought that sort of, if we think of the layers as being um, uh, a way of sort of, of, of the passage of time, uh, then the different scaled screens are about sort of the passage of space, that the small screen looks like the big screen, but further away. Um, and then by overlapping them, uh, it sort of makes clear the fact that the small screen has something to do with the big screen as well. So it sort of introduces that idea of uh, something that could be repeated to infinity and that we're just looking at a small part of, of a process or a system. Uh, so all those things, <laughs> I mean, it sounds very esoteric. Uh, but the idea was really that, and I think when I spoke to you about the, sort of the layers introduce a sense of depth. And I think indigo as a sort of colour has this colour field depth to it yeah. where it doesn't look flat. It's because it's, again, a natural process. It seems to have a sort of, um, like, like it's like looking into space rather than looking at a flat colour. And so that spatial aspect to it, the layered aspect, the time aspect, <laughs> uh, and this idea of the screen, um, which is, I mean, in the end, it's a geometric pattern as screens are as well. Uh, so hopefully all those things come together and that's, um, you know, it's an object imbued yeah. with meaning and with visual delight. Well, I think we're going to go to our last question to wrap up. Um, and it's, it's been so, uh, our, our conversation is, is amazing because it covers basically, you know, um, it's almost like a summary of your 25 years as both architect and now. Um, also artists, uh, textile artists as well. And, and you know, in both of it, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier just now that both of them touch on uh, sustainability, whether, you know, it's integral in the blueprint or it's a conscious um, uh, uh, decision to use these processes. I think what, what would you, as a designer and also artist, what, what do you hope for? Um, in terms of sustainability in design? Like, do you think there's enough um, sustainable design uh, in the world? And if not, you know, what are some of the things that you, you think that people should pay attention to? Mm. Um, I think it's probably we're past the time of seeing design. sustainability as, um, you know, something new to throw into the mix of a, of a design brief. Uh, Design at its core is where we imagine the future and then we create it. Um, and so I think it's a very um, future-focused activity. Uh, and the need for a design is 
is usually because for some reason what we have now, you know, isn't doing the job or it doesn't feel right or it seems to be um, uh, of a different era and not addressing what we need things to do now. So I think uh, sustainability is becoming deeply embedded in design. Um, ideally, it's driven by the brief, you know, that um, maybe we're you know, running out of big chunks of wood, so we've got to figure out ways of of, of working with natural uh, materials where we're not chopping down forests. You know, are there other faster growing things? Can we use bamboo? You know, these are, I think, the ways that, that design can deeply embed sustainability um, and not be seen as what I was doing before, plus I add a bit of sustainability. You know, if we're really solving the problem that the world's too crowded, the world's getting too hot, it's getting too polluted, it's running out of resources. I mean, these are all very high level requirements that any design must be addressing, I think. So I'm, you know, not seeing it anymore as like, uh, I wish people were more sustainable. Uh, maybe it's, I think our briefs need to be a bit more urgent in getting us to a sustainable future faster. Um, and I think it has to happen at all levels of society, you know, some driven by regulation, some will be driven by scarcity, uh, some will be driven by market forces where things get too expensive to use or too difficult to obtain. So, yeah, I think it's what I just hope is people are really positive about it. I don't like it when people grumble, <laughs> you know, something can't get really big wood anymore. It's like, yeah, because we cut down all the forests. <laughs> You know, it's like it's not a problem that you can't get any wood. The problem is the forests are gone. You know, get get your head on right. Uh, I don't really care if someone's uh, you know wardrobe can't get a particular rare veneer anymore. I think that's uh, a very selfish way of looking at things. Uh, I think you know designers can always create something really beautiful, something meaningful. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm not worried that design is impacted by sustainability at all. I just you know, I hope people have a really positive attitude toward it because we've got to imagine a fantastic future or we won't get one.